right, good afternoon all and welcome to the 14th episode of We The Scenario. I'm your host, Tony Siona, and this week, my fearless companion, Ms. Maggie B, will not be with us today, but she will return on Friday. As we near the end of July, we are still faced with the turmoil of this unprecedented pandemic. Each week that passes, more questions arise and less answers are given. At this point, I say throw 2020 away and start over completely. Now, though we all have our own views, one thing is for sure, the hearts and passion of all Americans are being tested. At Low, our work is never done. The youth of our community needs our guidance more than ever now. Now, with that being said, our podcast is geared to give our kids another view on life and career exploration. This week, we are honored to have a maternal fetal medicine subspecialist with the obstetrics MFM specialist of Houston, an alumni of Tulane University School of Medicine, also an alumni of the mighty Xavier University of Louisiana. I present to you all the very talented Dr. Nicole Pliny. Thank you for joining us today, my dear. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. You got everything right in the intro. Look at you. <laughs> gotta try. I gotta try. I gotta try. Uh, like I said, welcome on. Uh, now, can you talk to us a little bit about what you do and uh, what inspired you to join us on today's show? Sure. So um, I am a, a maternal fetal medicine specialist, which is basically a doctor that takes care of high-risk pregnant women. So women that, that may have a history of cancer or current cancer, high blood pressure, diabetes, strokes in pregnancy, or history of strokes in the past, and now they've gotten pregnant. Um, and I also diagnose uh, complex fetal anomalies. So um, I diagnose babies in the uterus that may have um, heart defects or brain defects. Um, I diagnose genetic syndromes and we do genetic testing um, by doing procedures um, to sample the amniotic fluid in the uterus. So um, I do everything that deals with high-risk obstetrics or high-risk pregnancies um, all day. Um, so that's what I do. Um, I was inspired to go into OBGYN because I had a cousin who died when I was actually in college. Um, she was 23. I was a sophomore in college and she passed away from complications of what's called preeclampsia. And that's just when you have high blood pressure and vascular damage from hormones from the placenta. And so she ended up um, having issues and complications from that disorder um, and end up dying from respiratory failure later on. So that prompted me to do a lot of research um, into high-risk pregnancies and also uh, inspired me to go into the medical field in general. Um, what inspired me to come on here today is um, I just wanted to give back. You know, um, Dwayne is a really, you know, good friend. Um, we've gone to Xavier, done a lot of things. He's always been very impactful in whatever community he's in. Um, he was like basically Mr. Xavier, <laughs> planning a whole bunch of stuff around campus. And so um, I knew that whatever platform he was on, it was going to be something that was doing good for the community. And so um, I, you know, naturally wanted to be a part. Um, I am from a really small town, um, which uh, has some very meager beginnings. And growing up, I didn't have mentors. So the fact that you guys, you know, have interns now um, that are learning about things ahead of time, they're already leaps and bounds ahead of other people um, because I didn't have this type of exposure. So if I can give back and expose children to not even children, y'all are grown, expose uh, our young, our young adults um, to medicine and get them to see the good in it, especially in light of the pandemic and all that we're seeing that's bad, um, then I'll do whatever I can to do that. That is very awesome. Now, considering, you know, the business that you're in, I have a daughter. Uh, she had preclampsia as well. Um, I actually lost a grandchild last year um, because of that. But now, I, you know, my grandson made it. 
little T3, so I'm kind of happy. But it was because of a doctor like you, so I want to thank you for what you do. So uh, with that said, what made you decide to want to get into this particular field of medicine? So in addition to the cousin that I mentioned that died from um, preeclampsia, initially when I was, I mean, when I was in high school, I thought I wanted to be an attorney. And so I thought I was going to go to Tulane. I had a legislative scholarship there. And whenever I, um, I was nominated for this National Youth Leadership Forum on Medicine in California, in LA, and I, I went there. And it's funny because I was like plotting to go there, right? So, you know, my mom was working two jobs in high school. We didn't have any money. So I called my uncle, who was an engineer, and I said, hey, look, I'm really interested in this. Can you fund it? If you fund this part of the trip, I'll get the other uncle to pay for the trip, you know, the flight, you know, that kind of thing. So they agreed to fund it. They did. Um, I went there and that's when I fell in love with medicine. Like I liked um, visiting the campuses. I visited a lot of campuses across California. Um, I, I liked talking about medicine and uh, like seeing the labs and doing the practice dissections. And so I was like, oh, I think I may like this better than I like law. And three of the seven counselors were African-American or I think there was one. Yeah, no, they were all three African-American and um, all three of them had went to Xavier. <laughs> and so even from Louisiana, I didn't know anything about Xavier um, until I went to California and met these counselors that were Xavier grads. And so that's why um, I ended up going to Xavier. That was what sparked my you know, interest ultimately um, in medicine in general. And then, you know, obviously with the complications of my, my cousin, that is what sparked me into going into OBGYN um, and high-risk uh, obstetrics. Okay, so that was why you chose to, the field of women's health as yeah. opposed to being a general doctor. Correct. Okay, now, can you talk about the type of mentorship you do with youth from low-income communities uh, where you're at right now? Sure. So right now, my sister and I, so my sister lives in Houston. Um, I'm in Houston now. I moved here about a year ago, I guess a little less than a year ago. And we basically have started a project for our hometown. And what we do is we raise money to give scholarships. So right now we give five of them. We give five $1,000 scholarships to um, African-American students from our hometown. Um, and then we also set up these mentoring um, sessions with them. So we meet with them every six weeks to talk about their career goals. And, you know, it's funny because I've been trying to get somebody to go into OB, uh, like say they're interested in medicine. Mm -mm, no, no. I don't know why they will not do it. Um, I haven't convinced anybody yet, but obviously this is something new. We, we just started in 2019. Um, so I'm hoping that we can get more people interested in medicine in general. My sister has definitely gotten people interested in counseling and then a couple of people want to be attorneys. Um, but no one's had, no one has quite honed in on, um, uh, going into into medicine. Everybody's like, that's just such a long, long time. I'm like, okay, well, let me work on you for a second. So mm -hmm. hopefully I'm working on people and they'll change their minds. But um, that's the way we give back. And then um, I also do some volunteer work um, and work with our uh, community outreach programs through the sorority, um, Alpha Kappa Alpha, of course. Um, I work through the sorority with our um, our uh, programs, our HBCU for Life program, um, and do some mentorship there. Oh, that's awesome. So just, you know, in the position you're in now, what makes mentorship important to you for our communities and for the community that you're in now? Well, I just think that um, mentorship is almost the only way you can sort of kind of get that equal exposure. So if you have, so for instance, in my med school class, there were four African-Americans. There were about eight to 10 um, brown people or people that 
didn't fit African-American, but they were, you know, um, from India or um, they were um, uh, Latina. And so between us, we did not have exposure that our other classmates had that may have had parents and grandparents who were already doctors or they had already been exposed to things. So people that were exposed were ahead of the game, right? And so the stuff we were reading about and learning, they had already shadowed their dad in the clinic or they had already been in the hospital and knew, you know, how to start IVs and stuff like that. Whereas we didn't have that exposure. We had to learn all of our information firsthand. Even things as simple as applying to internships during medical school, you know, you may not have that exposure because you don't know anybody who's funding an internship. And that can be as simple as, oh, there's a doctor that's funded this program. You know, they've told their friends about it, but, you know, their friends tell their kids, but it's not necessarily disseminated to the schools. And so mentorship is important because you want to make sure you're focusing on those students that may not have that dad or grandparent that gets that exposure or have that opportunity for funding. So, um, so for me, it, it sort of equals the playing field and giving people um, the knowledge that, and exposure to see if they're even interested in the field. Right. Now, as mentors ourselves, especially us out here, uh, we're always interested in the role that mentorship has had in our guests' lives. So did you have the guidance of a mentor at any point throughout your adolescence or early adulthood and help guide you to your success? Or did you run this, this, this role yourself? Well, nobody really runs it themselves, right? And so um, wow. if I talk about my little hometown, so I'm from a really small town called Dorita, Louisiana, and it's, it has about mm, a little over 10,000 people there. So it's tiny. So when you're talking about exposure to different things, like they just, it just wasn't there. Like you would be, um, even if you found somebody that was of color that went to college, like that was a big deal. So um, when I tell people all the time, like, oh, you, you know, you're successful. I'm like, I was successful as soon as I went to Xavier. Like I was successful as soon as I went to college. Because right? you, don't, you don't see um, that many people uh, that are from low income communities um, or from minority communities that are actually, you know, going to college. Um, with that, it, growing up in high school, I definitely had a lot of people, I mean, to try to dissuade me from going to college. I mean, there were people that were, I remember my history teacher, he told me, and I said, I think I want to be a doctor after I came back from this National Youth Leadership Forum on Medicine. And I said, I said, I think I want to be a doctor. And he said, are you sure you don't want to be a nurse? You know, that's really expensive to do. And I said, no, I want to be a doctor. <laughs> um, and so I don't, the mentorship piece in terms of directly to medicine wasn't there in high school per se, but my mom has always been one and she didn't go to a four-year college. She um, is a phlebotomist and she was a medical assistant when I was younger and worked at a nursing home. So she had certifications, but she didn't go to college. Um, but she was always one to encourage us to do whatever we want to do. So, you know, coming home and telling her that somebody told me I wanted to be a nurse, she was like, mm, you gonna be a doctor, you know, you gonna be a doctor. Like for her, she was like helping on making sure I was a doctor at that point. Right. So, um, so not direct mentorship, but definitely support and encouragement from my family. And I don't think that I would have gotten through college without them. Um, when I got to college, oh yeah, I had a lot of mentors and I would encourage anybody like, 
ask for a mentor. Like I found people that I was like, I want to be like them and directly reached out to them. And it's amazing what people will help you do when they think that you want to be like them and appreciate them. Um, they'll help you do a whole bunch of stuff. They'll create opportunities for you that weren't even there. And so I definitely had the privilege of um, having mentors in college and undergrad. And then when I went to medical school, I, I, I definitely had a lot of mentors and I still have a mentor. Like my mentor from residency, like was a person that made me, you know, I was like, oh my God, I'm not good enough to do fellowship. Like my scores aren't high enough or these people are more competitive. Maybe I shouldn't do this. And she was the person that really pushed me, uh, Michelle Owens, who I go to for everything even now. Um, before I do anything, I run it by her. And she has always encouraged and motivated me because she's always doing something um, to give back and do more. So I do encourage anybody, find a mentor, latch on to them, um, do your part as a mentee, because that takes hard work just being a mentee. Um, mm -hmm. But definitely ask people for help because you can get way further with a mentor than you can without one. Right. You said something earlier about, you know, how a lot of kids are probably, uh, you know, they turn away from it because it's too much schooling. I understand that. My mom became an RDA, right? Mm -hmm. And I was only in eighth grade when she did this. But she was working. She would record her classes, and I would have to write down all her terminology. So I ended up learning how to become an RDA by the time I hit the ninth grade. <laughs> I, like, learned yeah. all the terminology. But it did scare me. So what you said earlier kind of made sense. So, um, but before we get any more into that, uh, I have a question for Ms. Soraya Shabazz. You want to go ahead, Soraya? Yes. Okay. Um, sorry, I lost my question. Um, in your line of work, do you tend to see more minority women having these high-risk pregnancies? And if so, why do you think that's the case? So, yeah, I do. I mean, when you talk about sheer numbers, I see more Caucasian women, right? Just because there's just more of them. But if you're talking about um, that get diagnosed with complications and are hospitalized, yes. Um, especially like right now with COVID, like I haven't had any Caucasian women diagnosed with COVID, like not one. Um, they've all been um, Latina or African-American or Nigerian-American. Um, so I haven't had any Caucasians with the COVID. Um, and when you talk about hypertension and diabetes, there's just a higher incidence of underlying hypertension and diabetes amongst African-Americans. So percentage-wise, yes, I do see it more commonly um, in people of color. Um, I think that, one, it has a lot to do with, um, I mean, this is, just, this is like going way back. Like we can talk about, you know, why minorities have more medical conditions just because of you know, uh, ingrained in slavery and diets that we had to do that have been passed down from generation to generation. Yeah, it has a lot to do with that. But even now, if you look at the percentage of minorities um, with obesity, that plays a, a very high part in a lot of other downstream um, medical conditions. I think that has a lot to do with it. If you're talking specifically about the pandemic and COVID, um, a lot to do with it is because some minorities, and not all, right, not all, but if you're talking about minorities uh, that are from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, we do see that more often because you have several generations and several people living in the same household and they cannot distance themselves socially. And so if you have something that's airborne, you are more likely to spread it to your family unknowingly until somebody ends up with symptoms. So the answer to your question is yes. And that is, that is why, um, 
in terms of hypertension, I do think that some of my patients um, do not see physicians until they get pregnant. And that's an issue because if you're not seeing a physician to get your annual exam, well, you don't even know if you have high blood pressure. You don't even know if you have diabetes. So then when you get pregnant, it's normal in the beginning because people that have hypertension, their blood pressure actually drops at the beginning of pregnancy. But then as you progress through the pregnancy, you get all those complications from your underlying conditions that you didn't know about. So I, those are the, my theories as to why. Um, obviously, there's a whole bunch of underlying reasons, and not all um, African Americans are the same, and not everybody's from every so you know from the same social economic background. So there are a lot of factors that play into that. But for my patient population, that's why. Wow! Thank you very much for that answer, Sarai. Mm -hmm. Did you got any more for that? No, thank you. All right, well, I am blowing up in the chat right now, and I have a lot of questions for you. So. I have a question from MC Ginger J. He asked um, how, how you use your medical experience and expertise to fuel your salad restaurant and why you chose to be a part of the culinary industry as well. So that is a project of my husband's that we're co-owners on. It's called Green District. Um, it's in Fishers, Indiana. We used to live in Fishers. And so um, initially my husband wanted, my, my husband has such an entrepreneurial spirit he just does. And as a, as a physician, I just could not see myself doing something that would be harmful to the community. So initially he talked about doing things. Um, we talked about home health company, but that would require me to do a whole bunch of work. And I already worked full time as a, a doctor. And then he was approached um, by a different company that would offer almost like a fast food um, company. And I was like, well, I don't feel comfortable as a doctor selling fast food you know that's not gonna help anybody that's gonna hurt the problem and so when we started researching um different options um i said you know i want a healthier option um so we're going to put something in the community um as a clinician i feel like it has to be something healthy he did some research and then stumbled across this opportunity um with green district and so we then you know opened a green district um, which basically sells all fresh chopped salads wraps soups that are homemade hummus that kind of stuff Okay, you're making me hungry, and I haven't had lunch yet, so that was a great answer. I hope Ginger J is uh, satisfied with that. I'm going to switch gears a little bit because the questions are coming. Um, how does a father using drugs impact pregnancy? And this goes straight to your line of work. So if the father is using drugs and you're trying to get pregnant, that can decrease the father's sperm count and basically decrease the likelihood of you getting pregnant. But then if the father is using drugs and let's say – because there's different types of drugs. So let's say the father is using something that can't be absorbed by the mom. Okay. So the father is using, I don't know, cocaine. Like you can't just like sort of inhale cocaine. So if the father is, is injecting any injectable and once the patient gets pregnant, it usually doesn't affect the baby. So it can affect the baby in the first trimester because then it decreased the quality of the sperm. And so then you're in the all or none period. So that three, that before three to five week period, you're just going to have a miscarriage. But once you get past that, it usually doesn't affect the baby and cause like birth defects and stuff like that. Like it would if the mom uses it throughout the pregnancy. Okay. That is a great answer. I have another one coming from my brother, Robert Dusser. Now, would you recommend that new parents pre-birth spend time in soothing mental health practices to impact baby's health and successful delivery. Now, if so, do you have some suggestions or resources for them? You mean, um, do I uh, rephrase your question one more time? Do I think that uh, expecting moms should practice, have mental health practices? 
Is that what you mean? Should they spend time in soothing mental health practices to impact the baby's health? So, yes. Um, I think that um, mental health is really important, um, especially amongst minorities, especially right now. Um, There's a lot of stuff going on. And so if you are mentally strained um, during your pregnancy, we know that stress can lead to increased risk of preterm uh, labor and preterm deliveries, which lead to increased risk of hospitalizations. So yes, if you can practice, um, you know, mental health exercise or see a mental health therapist, absolutely. Um, I always encourage people, ACOG.org has uh, a list of mental health facilities that you can go to, um, as well as the American College of Psychiatrists. Um, they also have mental health F- experts that you can actually do telehealth visits on um, to, and there are also free resources there as well. So if you can't afford the visit or if you want to do things that are um, virtually and free, um, they will allow you a certain amount of time to talk to a therapist. So obviously you can Google a therapist as well um, or ask your OBGYN for a referral for a therapist. Um, but yes, especially if you're stressed, I think that everybody should have a therapist to be perfectly honest. Even if you don't think you're, thre- you're stressed, um, I think it's helpful with just like your personal life, your marriage. I, I just think that everybody should seek some type of counseling. Um, But especially if you feel overwhelmed or stressed, you should ask your provider to refer you to someone um, and let them do the legwork and and figuring out, hey, does this person take my insurance or not? Or I need free resources or not? Like that's our job to make sure you have what you need. Okay. Now, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Now, consider the fact we've we've interviewed a lot of doctors, especially from Xavier. I don't know whether they, they put something in the water down there. You know, but, a lot uh, of us. It's a lot of us. Yeah, it's a lot of you. But now we learned in a previous podcast that people of color, and especially women of color, only make up a very small percentage of doctors. Have you faced any challenges going into your field of medicine? Well, yeah. I mean, um, black women make up about 1% of medicine. So, um, so yeah, I, I think that um, the challenge is people say insensitive stuff and they don't realize it's insensitive. And then people have uh, just implicit bias, right? Um, They don't understand that they are being racist. And sometimes they don't understand that the things that they they say are very much insensitive. So yes, I've been excluded from meetings that I'm supposed to be on. I've had people that have had meetings about me without me being there. Um, I've had meetings about me while I've been the division director without me being there. And somebody has called me and told me, hey, or were you aware you missed the meeting? Well, no, I didn't miss the meeting because I didn't call one. So tell me about the meeting. So, um, So that kind of thing happens all the time to undermine women in this industry. And honestly, every industry, not just medicine. But yeah, it happens. And when it happens, I have to smile and politely say, well, no, I didn't know about a meeting because, you know, you can't get angry. Can't get angry. So I have yeah, to say, something. I didn't know about the meeting. Can you please yeah. fill me in? And then I will proceed to give my my two cents. So everything is, you know, as a as a black woman, you can't come off too forceful. You got to do everything with a smile because you don't want other people to feel threatened. There are people that commonly perceive people of color as a threat, whether you're a man or a woman. And if you're a woman, you're angry and you're a threat. Right. So now I realize if I say more things with a smile, which I naturally do, mm-hmm. then I'm perceived as less threatening. Right. Well, I, I you know, speaking on that, <laughs> thank you, Mama. I can hear her calling from heaven right now. But 
You know, I, I love standing in that. You know, if that's where you view me, I'm gonna walk. I'm gonna walk you into it because it, it seems like that's just your view of me. I can't go off of what you think of me. I'm gonna stand and walk the way I walk. You're gonna have to take this. I'll keep it moving. But uh, thank you for that answer. I can appreciate that. You know, um, overcoming those challenges though, and achieving all the success that you have. I mean, what what kind of hate do you deal with on a daily basis now that we're in 2020? Is it is it worse now because of all the political and racist things that are going on in the world right now? Is it worse for you now in your field or is it getting better? No, it's a good time to be minority right now. You know, over time, it only gets better. You know, even when we see that the injustices and we think that it's worse, it's still better because at least now the injustices are recognized. Before, they weren't recognized. People were getting discriminated against and you had to shut up. And if you didn't, you were fired. And it's very hard to prove discrimination in the workplace. It's it's hard to sue, it's hard to sue somebody for that, and it's even harder to sue a corporation for that because their their pockets are going to be deeper than your pockets, and so it's almost discouraged to take action against a discrimination. Now that things are being highlighted, it's way easier to take action against that type of thing, um, and I think that it's highlighted that hey. Some people are racist. So I think that people are starting to check themselves and starting to actually think before they say things. Now, you're going to have people that just don't care and they're not going to check the, the words that are coming out of their mouths. But they are starting to check themselves. And I have people, e even now, um, that will ask for my opinion now. Whereas before, you know, if, if, I'm, if I'm quiet in a meeting, they may not even bother to ask. It's like it doesn't even matter. Now it matters. Well, I mean, you should matter. I mean, you, you went through the same hurdles. You went through the same educational problems that they had to go through. So one, I figure once you once you earn that title, respect it. You know, that they need to respect that title. Um, that's just me, though. Personally, I, I am a walking problem, and I, you know, and I love it. You know, this is how I live my life. It's easier to be uh, more direct, especially as, you know, a man of color myself. Um, I don't come off threat, and I'm already sizable. So that – immediately as you view me you see me as a bear anyway so um, i'm already a threat walking up to you so i have to keep the smile you have all the time so yeah, yeah. you're right you're, you're you're doing great i have a question here actually from robert uh he's uh thanking you for talking about the use of microaggressions and he likes how you he'd like to know how you can talk to others about it but uh how can you make suggestions to our students about how to deal with microaggressions from teachers and employers so that they can assert themselves while building their career so um, yeah, students, you're in a you're in a rough position because you do have to be cautious about what you say and how you say it. And so um, I choose to wait to speak. So if somebody's basically being rude, um, whether that's a teacher or a counselor or another student, I would encourage you not to argue back and forth. Like you can't convince silly people to see your side. Like you can't convince somebody that already has their mind made up to see your side, but you allow them to rattle on. And then I usually ask, okay, are you done now? Right. And then you can respectfully without being argumentative, say what it is you need to say. Now, if you're, at, if you're talking to a person of authority who you feel is being disrespected, I would always encourage you to report it. Like, go up the ladder and report it, and then always let other people know what's going on. I think that young people will, will internalize stuff, 
and feel like, well, I don't want to go to my mom and say this because then they're going to make a big deal out of it. Or I don't want to go to the principal because their principal is going to believe them over me. Okay. Let, let them form those decisions. Like that, let them make those decisions. You go and report it. If, especially if it's a, a teacher being rude, you go report it. You make an appointment with your with your principal or your guidance counselor. And you say, Hey, I don't feel comfortable with this teacher. I felt disrespected when um, X, Y, and Z happened. And you need to tell your parents because what you need to do is make sure you're creating a track record of these microaggressions and a track record of this mistreatment so that if something happens like you want they trying to suspend you or not recommend you for something then you have proof that hey this person is out to get me it's not anything that i'm doing i've been respectful the whole time and then you have your parents back and, and doing that as well okay thank you for that i hope that uh satisfies robert's question now uh, Justin here has a question for you. I'm going to bring him in right now. Go ahead, Justin. I was wondering if you thought that um, medical education was more needed now in um, like the high school and middle school um, environment. Because to be honest, I mean, we learn like all the parts of the body and that's pretty much it. So I was wondering if you just think um, we need to learn more about medicine and uh, medical health. So I think, um, so it, it just depends. So I think that in middle school and high school, I think exposure and more programs geared toward people that may be interested in medicine, like the mentorship is needed. But in terms of medical classes per se, in middle, middle school and high school, I don't think that that is as needed. I think that um, exposure to sciences is needed because you have to have the base, right? So you have to have your core science courses first. And I think that that foundation is, it starts in middle school and in high school. Can you have some exposure to medical technology in high school? Yes, I think that that's, that's a good idea as like a junior or a senior. But when you talk about middle school through 10th grade, I think that it would be a disservice to not make sure that students have a very solid foundation in terms of like just general chemistry and general biology and things like that. because you can't get to anatomy and physiology without knowing that basic stuff. So yes and no, yes, junior, I mean, um, junior, senior year, yes, but otherwise I think that it's more important to make sure that everybody has a, a solid STEM foundation first. Okay, I hope that satisfies you, Jay. I'm gonna jump back into questioning here with you if you don't mind. Now, I have a question for you about the pandemic that we're dealing with, COVID-19. I mean, what's your views on that? Ooh. Well, so, let's dig. Let's dig. So, um, you know, it's funny because a coworker in mine, we were looking at this pandemic in like January and he's from Greece. So for him, he knew about this thing before it would even happen. And a lot of doctors did. And so naturally we thought, well, we can't do any international travel because they're going to do the same thing that the last president did with Ebola, which is shut down all the borders. So no cases can get in. And then the few cases that managed to straggle in, they're going to quarantine those people. And then the disease is going to be gone, at least in the U.S., right? Because Ebola is still not gone. Right. It's just not in the U.S., right? So at least we would protect ourselves. So when that didn't happen, we were like, wait a minute. What's really going on? And why are these people not shutting these borders down? And then when people are allowed to go out on cruises and things like that with the numbers rising, then it was like, okay, wait a minute. 
we, are we really witnessing this? I mean, we were literally every day talk about this in like shock, right? So of course he's like ordering all this stuff on Amazon and I'm like, are we really doing this? He's like, yes, we're going to have to do this. Cause he's like, wait, let me tell you, they're going to have a shortage because we're not going to get the heads up that we had before because the person that was put in China to monitor this kind of thing is gotten, gotten fired. So it's going to hit the fan. And so, um, I felt like, I feel like a lot of this responsibility is because we didn't stop this thing in its tracks. And even if it came over here and then we decided, okay, now we realize this is more serious. We should stop it in its tracks. We didn't. And so a lot of this was created, created because if we would have stopped it, it would have not, it wouldn't be spread here. Right. And so since we didn't stop it, then all of a sudden it became a political issue when it, it has nothing to do with politics. I mean, you can poll doctors, like 90% of doctors will tell you, and I say 90% because 10% of them claim to be doctors. And I'm like, where do you get your credentials from? Because you obviously don't follow science. But either way, the 90% of us that do, regardless if you're Republican or Democrat, realize that everybody should be on the same page. We should basically shut the United States down, or we should have a long time ago, shut it down before you even got to the point of having to wear a mask every day. But right. we, we allow this state to do this over here and this state to do this over here. And all these people are doing different stuff and still allowed to travel domestically, some internationally. And so now we have a crisis on our hands. I'm in Houston, which is like bad right now. It's like yeah. horrible right now um, for this pandemic. Um, we are trying to be proactive in treating people that are pregnant on labor and delivery and giving them drugs that we would normally reserve for the ICU setting just because we don't have any ICU beds. So if they get sick enough at this point to go to the ICU, they're going to have to be transferred out of the city or into another system that can support them until all of those beds run out. So um, I think that it's unfortunate that people don't understand the gravity of this. Um, I think it's unfortunate that we've let this uh, politicization of this pandemic overcome us and we're feeding people that just because they don't have an exposure from their in their household with stuff they don't believe it until it's too late and they're they're dying um i think it's very unfortunate and but it's very real it's very dangerous um people need to stay home people need to wash their hands and yes people need to wear a mask i don't care if you're republican or democrat wear a mask you know what bothers me the most is that you have to tell people to wash their hands <laughs> I mean, my, my mommy taught me that when I was one. There's no reason why you shouldn't be washing your hands in the mask. You know, Oakland was doing really well in the beginning of this thing. Yeah. Now, the lake is, is full of people. You know, they're out here partying now. Everybody's outside because at this point, nobody's following the rules. Nobody cares at this point because it's not a novel disease to everybody out here. To everybody, this is a political stunt for the election. But because we've talked to so many different doctors saying the same thing you're saying, I believe it's a real disease and we don't have a handle on it and we're in trouble. That's, that's where I feel we are. We're in big trouble. And if we don't have a, I mean, if we don't get a handle on this thing. People are really going to be start to die at very rapid, uh, rapid rates. And I wish that people that didn't believe it, if we would allow visitors just for one day so that people can wear their, wear a mask and shield and just walk through the ICU and see who's in there. And, and there are young people, there are old people. There are black people, there are white people. There are people of all colors, all ethnicities, all religions. They are there and they are dying. And it's, it's ridiculous that there are people that don't believe that people are in there dying of COVID. And they are, and it's very disheartening when you have to 
remove somebody from the ventilator that's 35 years old that's just had their, their, their first baby. Like that is a lot to deal with. It's hard to have to pick and choose who's gonna get a ventilator. Who are you gonna transfer out and hope they make it to the next hospital? And which one are you gonna admit? And you talk about racism. I mean, we, everybody has implicit bias. So you allow resources to be short and you see that minority women are only 1%. Doctors are in general 3% black. Then you, then you have 97% other or Caucasian choosing who gets a vent and who doesn't, and you don't think people are going to use some implicit bias? They can't really be blamed for their implicit biases at that point. Okay. Because you're going to have to choose people based on who is who has the likelihood of surviving versus who's going to be wasting the time and die anyway. Nobody should have to make the decision, but it's going to come down to it. That's great. Uh, Robert said, uh, will you please run for president? I'm already pushing for uh, Dwayne to be a governor <laughs> anyway. So, you know, as long as I got both of you here, I'm going to put that out in the world and hope that thing <laughs> materializes itself. <laughs> but other than that, uh, how are you keeping sane during all these problems that we're going through? Like, what's keeping your sanity and keeping you straight and waking you up each day to get to work and, you know, pound the ground? What's keeping you up? Well, um... I have family. And so the good thing is I do have a support system. Um, I do have a strong belief system. So I pray a lot and I talk a lot. And so I think that regardless if you have a counselor or just somebody that you can vent to, like that kind of stuff is helpful, like not to keep stuff bottled in. So, um, so I do find other outlets just to distract me. Um, I try not to, at first I was watching like MSNBC every day, right? And trying to look at the numbers and like see what's going on. Now I tend to watch a couple times a, a, a week just to make sure I'm not missing anything. Um, and I tend to just read more scientific articles um, to stay abreast on the, the latest, not uh, the latest, uh, you know, uh, updated literature about COVID. Um, but I just choose to do other avenues. So uh, some Xavier Rice have started like a quarantine book club. I participate in that. People are like, I can't believe you have time for it. Like if you turn the TV off, you have time for a lot of stuff. So we read books that are fiction and we talk about that. Um, a friend of mine and I started the Oh That's Deep Black Women Conversations podcast. And that's just like us talking about like just everyday life, um, you know, as black women. And so things like that give me somewhat of another out um, versus just being a robot and going to work and dealing with issues. Right. Now, utilizing your faith is something that I'm into. Um, I can't say I'm the most religious person. You know, I, I don't really go to church, but I do lean on the faith I have. And it's been helping me get through this pandemic. Like, this has been the worst for me. I'm a very outgoing person. Mm. I have to be on these campuses. I have to be moving around. Even when I'm on the campuses, I'm never stuck in one place. I'm all over that campus, which was keeping me in shape. And now I done got the quarantine 15. So you know, I got to get back to work. But, uh, you know, I just, I'm thankful for people like you, like doctors, like you guys are, whether you know it or not, you're heroes in your own right. You know, and um, I want I just appreciate the service. And I thank you. you know, thank you. Was, and thank you all for giving back to the community as well. And all you, all you guys do. Yeah, it's, it's rough. You know, I can say, especially we, you know, me and Dwayne, we grew up out here in Oakland. So, watching you know our kids grow up against what we're doing is is crazy and it's just you know something that we need i got a question here from mr julian ramirez the mighty oregon ducks <laughs> i'll give you that question here he says one of the biggest problems that we've been facing throughout this pandemic is a lot of misinformation as a medical professional how do you deal with that what is some advice that you would give the people on how to handle it 
So I usually, um, I deal with misinformation, one, by going to look at the literature. Like you can always find the facts. Um, and so if a patient comes to me with misinformation, I'm very quick to correct them and very quick to give them sources um, for the correct information so that they can look for themselves if they don't believe me. And so if you see things that are on your social media or on your timeline, um, one, you should look and see what, what the source is. Is it a reliable source or is it not a reliable source? Um, two, you should separate fact from fiction, right? Is this somebody's opinion or is this actually fact? And if it's a fact, where is it coming from? Is that source reliable? And then three, before you share it, you make sure it has credibility. Like don't share anything, um, don't perpetuate a lie. Um, even if you're like, I believe this lie. No, that's you lying. Make sure you know whether your, uh, your fact is really fact. Um, and even if you know it's a lie, just just because it's cute doesn't mean you should share it. So I would say stop correct information when you get it and make sure you read on your own. Are you satisfied with that, Mr. Ramirez? Yes, I am. Thank you. <laughs> Do you have another question? Are you good for now? I'm good for now. All right, we got a chance to open up the floor. Anybody have any more questions for, Ms., uh, for Dr. Lee? Dr. Plenty, excuse me. You're fine. <laughs> Anybody got a question? Yeah, I just posted up something yesterday uh, about COVID-19 on my Facebook page. And it has nothing to do with fact checking. I just said exactly what I said. You know, wash your hands, <laughs> cover your mouth when you cough, which your mama should have taught you long, long, long ago, <laughs> and be aware of your surroundings. I mean, these are not hard things that we're asking. You know, we're not. they're not asking us to, like, lock yourself up in the house, close all the windows, and don't let anybody in or out. It's, if you do go out, be mindful of what's around you. That's not hard to do. And this country is built on making the simplest things the hardest things to do. And, and that just makes me sick to my stomach that this is not changing, and it seems like it never will. Yeah. You know? Hold on. Let's see. Uh, Dr. Roberts said, when is your book coming out? When is my book coming out? Yes. No books for me. Not yet. No? No plenty no, books? No books for me. But in the future, I will. Yeah, go ahead and put that on your list of things to do. put that on my list. <laughs> <laughs> put that on your list of things to do because we're definitely going to read. Uh, let's see. Uh, do we have anybody else? Oh, Pregnancy Pearls Podcast. Now, the podcast will drop in August. Now, right now, I have Pregnancy Pearls with Dr. Plenty, which is a YouTube channel um, where I give information out to uh, pregnant women as well as people that want information in general about women's health, whether that's preconception, meaning before you get pregnant or care after pregnancy or during the pregnancy. And I did that because I wanted to um, help moms sort of navigate through the pregnancy and know what questions to ask their OBGYNs because all OBGYNs are not created equal. They're not all gonna right. spend as much time with you. And so you do need to know like what warning signs you need to look for if you are pregnant and you need to know what to get prepared for if you're thinking about being pregnant. So I do have that um, YouTube channel as well as the website. Um, and then I'm on social media, um, uh, the Pregnancy Pros with Dr. Plenty, um, both on social media, uh, Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn. But um, the podcast will drop in August. And the <coughs> podcast is set up in such a way that um, we talk about cases. So there's an intern there. Yes, I have an intern that will go over a case, right? So they'll say, Dr. Plenty, this person is a 31-year-old woman that's 30 weeks pregnant that presents with high blood pressure and diabetes. 
What do you want to do for her? And so then I talk through these cases with the, with the intern. Um, and then people can email these cases in so that I can give them suggestions or, you know, email questions in at the end to give suggestions. And then I'll have also um, guests um, that are pregnancy expert or expecting moms that will talk about their experiences on there too. So I'll definitely keep you guys posted on that um, before it drops. That is awesome. Uh, I think fathers should be a part of that pregnancy pearls uh, podcast. They are. They are. We do have yeah. some men that are lined up to be guests, and we do have some advice for men um, that are expecting as well. Um, and then we also do have some um, some LGBTQ plus um, information coming out too, because you know some um, transgender men that uh, you know may be carrying babies, and um, so we do talk about that as well. That's a uh... That's awesome. I've never heard that. So that that's awesome. <laughs> I mean, like I can I've never heard of anything like that. So that's just incredible information for me. But uh now that anybody else have a question before we wrap this up with the wonderful talented Dr. Nicole Lee Plenty, our future president of the United States. <laughs> you guys all good? Okay, Mr. Julian, go ahead. So this is another question or well, it could also be an opinion as well that I wanted to wanted to ask you, especially as a medical professional. So I've been hearing like a lot of like skeptics, especially with like in regards to the whole mask debate who are saying like, oh, you know, first they said like, you know, don't wear the mask, they don't work. But now they say they do work. And because of that, it's because of that that some people are specifically choosing not to wear the mask because they said they were they said they were right. But now they're saying they're wrong. Like what do you have to say like in regards to that i would encourage people to do more than read headlines because the question so it should be why right so they said at first don't wear a mask okay china was wearing masks if you look back at that data but they said in the u.s you shouldn't wear masks and that's because one there weren't that many cases it wasn't community spread yet they could contact trace everybody that was positive back to who they had been exposed to. So you didn't have to wear them because they were contact tracing them and it wasn't airborne at that, at that point. And they didn't want the public to wear masks because if the hospitals don't have masks to treat you, then all your doctors and your nurses are going to die because they don't have the proper mask because everybody's ordering up on Amazon, right? And so they told people not to wear masks to allow healthcare professionals to have masks to actually treat people when they got sick. Then they said, hey, we do want you to wear a mask because then it became more community spread, okay? Then they said, we're out of masks, so stop buying masks again, but wear a homemade mask because things are better than, homemade masks is better than nothing, but we don't want you to go and buy these N95s out because the hospitals are trying to get them for the health professionals. So it's not that they didn't work, is that we were hoping that we could contact trace, stop everything before it became community spread, before we had to wear the mask. So that is why. So I would encourage people that are confused about, wait, first you said no. Well, look and see why they said no. They said no because of the shortage and it wasn't community spread. Then you said yes. Well, it said yes because now it's community spread. Then they said wear a homemade mask because they said wear a homemade mask because it's better than nothing because we don't have enough masks for people to order. And we'd rather you wear a homemade mask than waiting three or four weeks for the one from Amazon to come in the mail. So that's the why behind the change in... Um, the Surgeon General's recommendations. 
Anything else, Julian? Um, nope, that is all. Thank you. All right. If nobody else has any more questions, this is going to be your chance to promote everything you got coming up, Dr. Plenty. So I'm <laughs> going to give you the floor for a minute and go ahead and tell the people what you got coming, what's in the future, and you know what position you're going to give me when you get to the White House. <laughs> well, I'm not going to the White House. Politics is not in my future. Um, I do have, like I said before, Pregnancy Pearls with Dr. Plenty is a YouTube channel um, that anybody can subscribe for to get women's health information. I'm also on Instagram at pregnancy underscore pearls and then Facebook at pregnancy pearls. Um, me and a partner of mine also created, Oh, that's deep black women conversations. Um, it is not X rated or R rated talk. It's just normal day to day conversations about being black women um, in the U S. And so uh, we're on social media at, Oh, that's, uh, Oh, that's deep BWC on Instagram as well as Facebook. And then our podcast um, is on Spotify, Google Play, as well as um, Apple um, Podcasts at Oh That's Deep Black Women Conversations. Um, so anybody can subscribe to that. Um, Pregnancy Pros with Dr. Plenty podcast will be launched in mid-April, not mid-April, excuse me, August. And um, could be looking for the Pregnancy Pros Pregnancy Box that will be coming in 2021. All right, Dr. Plenty, to tell you that this has been more than an honor would be very low on the scale. This was great. This is information I've always wanted to hear, especially dealing with the fact that I'm a girl dad, so I have daughters. I have to be prepared for this as they get older. So I really enjoyed that information. Uh, all the questions that came from our panel here, thank you guys for doing that. I appreciate you. To our fearless leader, Mr. Dwayne Aikens, brother, always a pleasure. Now, this is our 14th episode. We want to thank you for coming again. Uh, we wish you nothing me. but great luck out there in Houston. And uh, please have an umbrella for that sun because I know it's hot out there. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> tell, tell, tell Minister Plenty, please pray for us because we need prayer more than ever now. <laughs> I <know>. definitely will. <laughs> yes, yes. So thank you all. Thank you all for joining our podcast. This is We The Scenario. You can catch us on Spotify, Anchor, and on YouTube. We The Scenario podcast. We have Meant to Fly, Mentoring on the Fly. Also, we have IG Rapid Fire with the young Soraya Shabazz and Time to Dig Deep podcast featuring our very own Dwayne Akins. Uh, once again, my name is Tony. I'm your host. Each week we have a different doctor, different talent. We will be here each week through the rest of the year. Thank you all for coming. Have a good day.